The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. The most important question in all of life, now and forever and ever, is do you have a living relationship with the God of the Bible? A living relationship. Do you? Not, do you know about Him? Not, do you have the kind of relationship like you have with your neighbor you see every now and then in the yard, or like a relationship you have with your cat or something like that? No, not that. What I mean, what the Bible means is a trusting, depending, loving, hoping in, supreme above all things, God. The most important question. That relationship, does it exist? There are a thousand other questions, a thousand other issues in life. Some of them very important. None of them this important. This is the issue, the question. And God became incarnate. It means became a person, took on flesh. The second person of the Trinity became human, named Jesus. God became man so as to address this greatest of all questions, this greatest of all issues. The problem is that we too often skip by this question to which he is the answer and move on too quickly to the other questions in life. Turn them. Try to make them most important. Make the things that are concrete, the things that are right here, the things that we hold in our hands, like leaky sprinkler master valves. I've spent way too many hours this week dealing with that valve that turns off the water to your whole sprinkler system, you know, the one that's conveniently located four feet below ground. And if it's leaking, that's four feet of really wet, really heavy ground. (laughs) It's been a long time dealing with that this week, and for a good portion of this week, the most important question of my life has seemed to be, can I fix this leaking valve so that I can get water back into my house and stop it from pooling up in my yard? That's been front and center in my mind this week. What about for you? Chances are it's been something. It's been some issue Some question that's been crowding in that has dominated your mind and your heart this week. If you're anything like me, you probably are, you're prone to really, really want to fix that problem, to address that question. And Jesus, if if he comes to your mind, Jesus then becomes the means to fix that problem that seems most important. Jesus, can you fix my sprinkler system? Or... Jesus, can you fix my marriage or my family? Jesus, can you fix my financial mess? Jesus, can you fix my job-related pressures? Jesus, can you fix my loneliness? Jesus, fix my body. It's not that he doesn't care about these things. He does. And as we pray to him about these things, and we should pray to him about these things, As you pray about those things, watch yourself, because the human condition is such that we are prone to turn, to to turn things, to turn Jesus and the gospel into a 
fixer-upper method. A method or a technique by which we fix all these little problems in our lives. That's what he becomes for us. Becomes like the, like the genie in the bottle that we rub him and out pops Jesus and we make, it, make a request of him. Fix this, fix this, fix this, please. Change this, help me with this. He's about something bigger, primarily. Something larger. And when that bigger and larger comes to dominate our thinking, comes to dominate our affections, all the other things look different. And we look differently at them. There is an effect here, but not initially. Initially, primarily, Jesus has come to deal with the big issue. The rest of things fall underneath of it. That's some of what we're going to look at in today's passage. How Jesus has come to deal with the big issue, not initially the, the smaller issues, how that changes us, and then sorts, helps us sort out the smaller stuff. We're going to look at that today a little bit in the book of John, picking up where we left off three weeks ago before Palm Sunday. So what's today's text? Of course, it's Palm Sunday. I was going to speak on this after the cantata, but as I began to look at it, I realized there's just too much here, so I left it until now and spoke from Romans and said, but now we're back in John, coming in on the heels of Jesus' final dramatic sign that we saw in John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Jesus takes this man who's been dead for four days and he brings him back to physical life as a dramatic and stunning sign. The final sign. The pinnacle, the final sign that indicates that he is the one in whom life is found. He's dealing in the physical realm, but he means the spiritual realm. And he's pointing that out, illustrating it in this Lazarus display. And a lot of people saw it. And even more heard about it as this all spread like wildfire. And many believed in him. Chapter 11, verse 45. Now, maybe that's good news, maybe it's not. By this point in the book of John, we realize that there is a form of belief that is not genuine, that does not persevere. And when Jesus presses the hard button, either he says or does something that's unpopular or something that goes contrary to what human beings desire, that kind of belief fades away. People turn, walk off. So what kind of belief is this? Chapter 11, we don't know yet. We're going to find out. But at this point, at least a lot of people believe he has never been more popular after this dramatic sign here. It's like he's, people have been kind of uncertain about him and he grabs them all back by raising Lazarus and there are massive crowds. So we come into chapter 12, we find that as the Passover feast is approaching, Jesus has come back into the vicinity of Jerusalem and he is the talk of the town. He has this dinner, the beginning of chapter 12, and a bunch of people go to where he's eating basically just to gawk. To look at Jesus and to look at Lazarus. Not very often you get to see that sort of thing. So they want to look at the guy who used to be dead. His popularity is growing. And because of this, the religious leaders decide, they make, they're making plans as to how to kill Jesus and also how to re-kill Lazarus to put this story to bed. That's their hope. So that's where we left off several weeks ago. Saturday night, before the final week, before the cross, maybe a million people or so in the vicinity of Jerusalem Many of them talking about Jesus. And then they hear that he's coming. Let me read our text for today. This is from John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. And the next day, 
the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This event takes place on Sunday, the day right after the dinner, in the earlier part of the chapter. And Jesus is coming into the city for the day's activities, as many others would have. Couldn't all fit in Jerusalem, so they'd stay in the vicinity. So surely on this road there are many other pilgrims coming into the city. So Jesus could have remained anonymous, like he did back in chapter 7, at another feast. But he doesn't do that. He makes his presence known. Jesus is causing a confrontation here. The other Gospels, they all describe the same event of his entry into the city. As we've talked about before, when you have all the Gospels describing the same event, you can figure out what each author is trying to emphasize by comparison and contrast. You can look at how they they turn it, from what angle they're looking at this. And when we do that with John, we realize a couple of points that he's trying to make. The first one is in verse 13. The crowd took palms and went out to meet him. Now, the palm... Palm branch is, generally speaking, a sign of triumph, a sign of victory. And specifically in Israel, it's almost a nationalistic sign because of how closely it was tied to many other feasts and celebrations in Israel. So you have this symbol of triumph, of of national triumph, of, of Jewish victory in their hands, and they go out to meet him. It's an important point. When a dignitary or a ruler or a champion or a victor or a hero comes to town, you go out to meet him. You don't wait for him to come to you. We still do this today with a, with a champion sports team or maybe with soldiers who come home from the war or a visiting politician. We go out to meet him. Maybe we go to the airport or we line the streets for a parade of some sort. That's what they're doing. Their very action, as John pictures it, is they're going out to meet a king. They are lifting him up as king, celebrating their national triumph. That's what this is about. Why are they doing that? Because they saw Lazarus. Verses 17 and following make that clear. This is driven by what they saw about Lazarus. This man, this Jesus, has power given him by God to do that kind of miraculous thing. Surely he's going to use that power. Come and see this guy. Come and see this guy who raised Lazarus, who's come to us now as our champion. Let's go out and greet him and welcome him. That's the talk. And when they see him, they erupt in this loud, rolling celebration. Picture this. There's there's a road. People are lining the sides of the road. and, And as he comes to them, they start to cheer. And it grows and grows and grows. And the people who he passes, they follow in behind him. 
So it's getting more and more and more people, more and more and more volume in this celebration. It's growing. And what are they saying? Hosanna. Literally, it means save now. By this time, it had come to be somewhat of, a, of an acclamation of praise or honor. Savior. Deliverer. All right, here he is, the king of Israel, our leader, our Lord, the one anointed by God, sent to deliver. Finally, he's come. Glorious is he. All honor and praise and blessing be to you. Come now, lead us. You can't overemphasize the enthusiasm in this crowd. It's wild, celebratory, it's triumphant, it's zealous. And it's all one great big colossal blunder. It's a huge misunderstanding. You could almost make a comedy movie out of this if it was funny. Millions of people who have no idea what they're talking about. Do you get that? We often celebrate Palm Sunday and we put ourselves in their place. We shouldn't put ourselves in their place too much. They don't know what's going on. It's a colossal misunderstanding. They're using all the right terms, all the right words. King, Messiah, leader, blessed. They're referring to Psalm 118. He's the fulfillment of Psalm 118. And they have no idea what they're talking about. They see Jesus as the answer to their biggest question in life, what they think is their biggest question in life. Fix the Rome problem, Jesus. Now, he didn't come to do that. And as soon as the jubilant crowd figures it out, they're going to turn on him in a heartbeat. We're just a couple days away from crucify him, crucify him. How do we go from king, Messiah, Lord, deliver, to crucify, crucify in a couple of days? Because they figure out he's not about this stuff. He's about something else or another that is not what I'm about. Jesus, though, gives us a clue here. John, as he writes, gives us a clue as to what Jesus is really about. Verse 14. And Jesus did something. Really, you could translate that with a little bit of contrast. But Jesus did something. Or as one commentator puts it, Jesus, for his part, found himself a young donkey and sat on it. Now, the other gospel writers tell us exactly how, gives all the details, how he found this donkey. He knew where there was going to be one. He sent a couple of disciples ahead. They got him. They brought him back, etc. But John presents it right here for dramatic contrast. Right after the shouts of jubilation, but Jesus found a donkey and sat on it. What's the big deal with that? Well, get a hold of the contrast. Here comes our king, the shouts of jubilation with vast, miraculous powers given in by God, surely meant to be used, by, used against Rome. Our liberator. Here we go. See him come to us, rallying the masses, entering the capital city, riding on a war horse. Uh, wait a minute, that's a baby donkey. Huh. That's interesting. Instead of a, of a powerful military mount, a little donkey... His feet were probably almost touching the ground. And it's not quite as bad as it might seem to us because people rode donkeys in that day. Common people rode donkeys. 
Maybe a sage or a, a wise man might ride a donkey. Prophet, maybe. Even perhaps royalty might ride donkeys, but only if they were trying to communicate, I come in peace. I do not come to make war. I do not come to instigate conflict. I come as the, the champion in peace. Jesus is sending a message about what kind of king he means to be. A king of war? A king of revolt? A king of the physical land here? No. A king of peace. A king of humility. A king of the heart. That's what he's about. They didn't get that. So it goes on with only one person, Jesus, understanding what's really going on. They didn't get it until after the cross. Verse 16, when Jesus was glorified, that's a reference to the cross and its related events. Only after the cross did the disciples get it. This had been previously written about him. These things had been done to him. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Of course, our king comes sitting on a donkey. Of course. He saw it after the cross. You might have a footnote indicating that verse 15 is a quote from the book of Zechariah. It's a reference to that verse in that chapter. And like a lot of Old Testament quotes, it's not actually a quotation like we think about. Quote, verbatim, quote. It's not that. It's an illusion, really, that's designed to throw your mind back to that chapter, grab all the ideas there, and bring them into the present context. Kind of like if, if I were to say to you, you know, God's great love motivated him to send his one and only son. What verse pops into your mind? John 3.16. Though I did not quote it and didn't even finish it. But you can probably finish it. So whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know that. There's an idea that drops into your mind when I say that phrase. Same thing going on here. John is throwing us back to Zechariah 9. And there's one word left out of this quote that's critical. It explains the donkey. Zechariah 9 says, Your king comes to you humble, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. One key word there. Your king comes to you humble. Of course, look at the cross. He's a humble king. And because he came humbly, he has addressed the biggest question in all of life. Of course. That's what the text is. That's what it's about. And it seems to me that when we look at this passage, we can sum up the, the main point in, in this sentence, this exhortation to us. Rest in and proclaim this humble and glorious King. Rest in and proclaim this humble and glorious King. He is humble and glorious. Something about Jesus here, lifted up in front of us, showing us Jesus again, as John always does. Showing us Jesus, and then we are supposed to respond to that by resting in Him and proclaiming Him. We'll start with Jesus. It displays Him again like that jewel that I've mentioned before. And the primary display of Jesus is wrapped up in the, the irony in verses 13 to 16. 
people saying things that aren't true, getting things backwards. So here's the first point. The glory of Jesus, I'm going to express this as an irony itself, the glory of Jesus is tied to his humiliation. It doesn't make sense at first, but it's true. The glory of Jesus is tied to his humiliation. They're together, it's a package. He is glorious. He gets much glory, but it's not at all in a way that human beings expect. It's through being humbled. The crowds proclaim him king, the Messiah. That's what's behind verse 13. The one who comes in the name of the Lord. He's the Messiah. They want to place him on a throne and they want him to lead them politically right now. That's how they want to glorify him. That's how they want to exalt him. Let's make you king. Rally us. Lead us. Deliver us from the physical oppression of Rome, from this taxation that they force on us, from subjugation, from oppression, from injustice. Deliver us right now. Deal with my sprinkler system and my marital discord and my financial problems right now. That's what I want. Do something right now. Show yourself mighty and awesome. We'll worship you. You'll make it clear to everybody how great you are. Now, he will eventually deal with all of that. All of it in his own timing, in his own way. Read the book of Revelation. All that is Roman, in essence, gets its due. Really does. The new heaven and the new earth is a glorious place. It's sweet. All things get sorted out. They do. But we are meant to see Jesus here dealing with something else. And seeing him and this gospel, seeing him humiliated at the heart of this gospel, changes us. It, it sanctifies us changes us, and that affects how we deal with all these other things in life. We'll talk a little more about that later. Came to address the big problem in an unexpected way, and they didn't get this until after the cross. Verse 16, notice how it refers to the cross as his time of glorification. Next week's passage is going to make the same reference. The Bible frequently talks about that. That's a really odd way to talk about crucifixion. Crucifixion was designed to be humiliating, not glorifying. The whole thing, stripped naked and nailed up in front of everybody to look at as you die slowly over the course of days, the whole thing's humiliating. How is that his glorification? Well, imagine it like this. Imagine that my leaking sprinkler valve, actually was the greatest problem in all of my life. It is my biggest deal. And it, I'm standing there digging this thing up, and it's just gushing out water. I'm standing in this hole, I'm, I'm up to my knees in ice-cold water, getting deeper all the time, and my neighbor comes over and looks things over, looks at me there, says, wow, your shrubs really need to be trimmed. You look like you're kind of busy dealing with that ice-cold water and all that mud there. You mind if I cut your bushes? What am I going to say that? Uh, I guess. Thanks. You know anything about sprinklers? That's my real problem right now. No, I just do it with the bushes. Okay. I'm probably not going to be too inspired to walk around the neighborhood singing his praises. 
However, what if, I know this is a little over the top here, but what if as I'm standing there and the water's rising up, he comes over and he, and he looks at me and says, wow, you look like you've you got a problem there. And he hauls me out of the hole, dives in himself, wrench in hand, the water's rising now, it's ice cold, holds his breath, submerges himself under the water, comes back up, goes back down again, comes back up and says, it's finished. Climbs out of the hole, freezing cold, muddy, split his thumb, is bleeding, smiling, walks home to get cleaned up and get some stitches. I look there. My other neighbors are gathering around looking at the spectacle. We learn something about my neighbor, about what he's like. He's really other-centered, gracious, kind, self-sacrificing, and really, really helpful. My problem's fixed. I, and everybody else who sees that, we could not tell that story. That'd be amazing. How could you not tell that story if that actually happened? He's shown something about himself, what he's like, and he's done something that I need my greatest problem in all of life fixed. Now, my sprinkler system is not my greatest problem in all of life. But there is one who has shown something about himself and fixed what is truly our greatest problem in all of life. He went down, he rose up again, bloodied, and said, It's finished. And it was. And it is. His humiliation and his glory, showing something about himself, showing himself to be useful, loving, gracious, amazing. Those things are knit together at the cross. His humiliation and his glory both. Or to put it in the words of Philippians chapter 2, though he, Jesus, was in the form of God. Remember where John 1 begins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. He is God. Second person of the Trinity, come to earth in flesh. He's God. Though he was in the form of God, says Philippians. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped and held onto. The second person of the triune God let go of his status, his right to be acclaimed, and made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus rode a donkey, humbling, but that was only a sign. A far greater humbling is coming. He who commands the hosts of heaven, think about that, commands the hosts of heaven through whom all things were formed everywhere, through whom and in whom all things are held together, who is the rightful king of all the creation, stood before his accusers who knew not what they were talking about, silent, like a lamb before the slaughter, like sheep before its shearers. He who gives men their every breath endured the slandering and scoffing of guards and rulers and crowds. He who makes atoms and molecules and binds them together to make wood and iron ore, laid down and let his creatures drive nails through his body into a beam. 
He who raised Lazarus from the dead himself embraced this final enemy of the grave. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the name bestowed on him. He is the Lord. This guy right here is the Lord to the glory of God the Father and to the glory of God the Son. King Jesus, humble and glorious. He can't reach that height of glory without being that humble. We can't have this problem in our life dealt with without Him being that humble. Praise Jesus for His humility. For His willingness to embrace such humiliation at the cross. should look at Him and realize He is God who had zero need for any of us. None, 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 zero need, and yet willingly embraced this path to draw many people back to him. That path required some things of him, a tremendous humiliation. Praise him. Should stir you should grip you. How are you supposed to respond to that? There are two ways that this passage tells us to respond. One internal, one external. Talk about the internal one first. Simply put, rest in Him. Rest in, that is, come to Him and and lean on Him, embrace Him, trust Him, hope in Him. Any of those words will work. I'm using the word rest in Him. I see this in the the statement, fear not, in verse 15's quotation. Fear not, O daughter of Zion. The phrase daughter of Zion is a a common way that the Bible refers to the people of God. It's very common, especially when those people are oppressed or hurting or downcast in some way. calls them the daughter of Zion frequently. But while the Bible also frequently tells the people of God to not fear, Zechariah 9.9 doesn't say that. It says, rejoice. It doesn't say, fear not, O daughter of Zion. It says, rejoice, O daughter of Zion. So what John has got here is he's primarily throwing our minds back to Zechariah 9.9 and the whole chapter of Zechariah 9. And he's also adding on how we should respond to that. Fear not. Or to put it positively, rest in him. Trust him. Hope in him. King comes. Humble. So don't be afraid. Fear not. Greatest problems in your life are going to be dealt with, and that's going to set everything else in line if you can get your mind around this cosmic plan, the big picture. Lifts up before us Jesus as this kind of God dealing with this kind of problem, and he expects that that will grab us in here, cause us to rest and to fear not. Now some of this is more easily seen, I think, in Zechariah 9. So I want us to briefly look at that chapter. This is not a sermon on the book of Zechariah, so I'm not going to spend very long. It's going to be pretty quick. But I'd like you to look at it right now. 
depending on how big your Bible is, how big the pages are, it's going to be five, six, seven pages before the book of Matthew. So it's right near the end of the Old Testament. Very close to the end. Zechariah 9, verse 9, right in the middle of the chapter, is the verse referred to in John and in the other Gospels. But before that, what do we have? Verses 1 to 8. Perhaps your Bible has a heading over it that says something like mine, judgment on Israel's enemies. And it walks through a bunch of Israel's enemies and how God's going to drop the hammer on them eventually. Philistines and whatnot. It's going to deliver them from their enemies. And then what do we have at the end of the chapter? Perhaps you have a heading like mine after verse, before verse 14. The Lord will save his people. So 14 and following is how he's going to deliver, how he will save. Look at verse 15. The Lord of hosts will protect them. Fear not. Verse 16. On that day the Lord will save them as the flock of his people. Who's the shepherd of God's flock? John 10. Jesus is the good shepherd. Fear not. On that day he's going to take care of the flock. He's going to deliver them from their enemies. What's right in the middle of that? Verse 9, rejoice, your king comes humble, mounted on a donkey. This seems like a little bit of a contrast. How can a humble king destroy my enemies and, and shepherd me and deliver me? Well, what does he immediately say in the following verses? Verse 10, the end of verse 10. He shall speak peace to the nations. He's going to bring universal peace everywhere. And his dominion will spread from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. The whole of the planet is going to be covered by this humble king's reign. How? Verse 11 gives us a clue. As for you, my people, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now, how exactly all that works out is not made clear in Zechariah 9. It's not even understood in John 12, not until after Jesus' glorification. Do you understand this looking back? But Zechariah 9 is about the cosmic picture, about the big scope. It's a trajectory that begins in Genesis and goes all the way to Revelation. There's a time of deliverance that is coming at the end when all enemies will be gone, when all the people will be shepherded and delivered, and that day begins when the king comes humbly. And the clue in Zechariah is the blood covenant that liberates the captives. It's not all clear there. But what becomes clear in the book of John is that the king came humbly. That was written about him, says John. We got that. We see the cross. We see, ah, part of it has happened. He fulfilled part of that. He came humbly and made a covenant with us. Therefore, by extension, he's on the path to fulfill the rest of it. On what evidence? Based on what? Based on the cross and the empty tomb. Do you believe that? That's the question. You can say no. You can say, no, I don't believe that. I think he only fulfilled half of it. The cross and the empty tomb, and that's where it stops. No more. I don't think so. I'm going to put my money on the other option. That if he offered up his son to us, will he not also along with him give us all things? Romans 8 says. 
If God has displayed his love towards us while we were yet enemies of his, will he not also at the end deliver us from the wrath to come? That's what Romans 5 says. I think so. Make your own decision. The point is, this is supposed to grab us and see that there is a grand trajectory here that he has begun. And it's supposed to give you evidence to believe that he will continue it. And when your mind gets up there, it's, it's, it's almost like a, when you look out and the clouds are here kind of moving across the Wasatch and the mountains stop right at the clouds. You know there's a mountain up there above. And if you can get above the clouds, you can see that mountain. You can drive up in the canyon and see it. If you can get above the cloud line and see the grand trajectory here that God is dealing with, the valley comes into perspective. That's what the gospel is supposed to do. Resting in Him. Fear not. You're going to be fine here. I'm for you. What can separate you from my love? Nothing. I've drawn you to myself. That's your biggest problem. When you get your mind around that, it will transform you by the renewing of your mind. You'll deal differently with all these things. Some of them critical. Some of them really, really painful. Really, really hard. But you'll be different in the midst of them. That should give you hope. I can deal with these problems if I can get my mind above the cloud line. That won't give you hope if you want immediate results in the here and now. It's going to frustrate you, actually. You're going to be in the crowd on Palm Sunday. Be king now. Deal with Rome now, not thousands of years from now. Now. Jesus isn't about that. The gospel's not about that. He's about transforming you in here. Rest in Him. Find hope in Him. Fear not. Rejoice. The King has come. And then what do you do externally? I think there's another application here, an external response. This one's a little more indirect. Fear not is, is directed to us, but the, the external response I see indirectly speaking back in John 12 from how the other people are acting in 17, 18, and 19. So here's the, the final response. Proclaim this glorious humble king. Proclaim him. Why did the crowds gather to meet Jesus? What the text tells us, because they'd seen something remarkable, Lazarus. And so they went around and told everybody, so many people, that the enemies are saying the whole world, for Pete's sake, is following after him. There's a dramatic effect. There are people here talking about Jesus, who they don't understand, having an effect on other people, bringing them to Jesus, they still don't understand, and it's carrying the day. The whole world going after him. I think there's a bit of, of John writing ironically here. If people who don't know what they're talking about can still bring people to Jesus, who themselves still know what they're talking about, such that the whole world seems to go after Jesus, shouldn't we be able to do them one better? Shouldn't we? We've seen something remarkable in Jesus. 
something far more remarkable than raising a dead man to life. We've seen that, if you've seen it. Shouldn't you do them one better? Shouldn't you proclaim him such that the world follows after him? There's good news here, far better than they knew. Should it not grip you? Now, what I'm not saying is that you should think of the wildest and craziest thing you could possibly do, and if you really cared, that's what you'd do. You'd stand out in the street corner just yelling your head off at people. That might not be the wisest thing to do. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. But I'm not saying that you should think of the absolute extreme and you would go there if you really cared. Don't understand me to be guilt-tripping you in that way. All I'm talking about is enthusiasm and willingness. There are people here, very enthusiastic and very willing to tell other people about something remarkable that they'd seen. Have you seen anything remarkable in Jesus? Anything? The convicting part for this, for me in this, is that it's almost a natural law that we talk about what we find to be remarkable. Why do guys stand around and talk about ESPN's highlights from last night? <laughs> because they can. <laughs> and because they like what they saw. There was something neat there. They saw a home run that was, that was remarkable, a goal that was out of this world. Why do parents and grandparents talk about their kids or their grandkids? Because they see something neat there. They want to tell other people. I'm not really a kid person. I'm, I'm not especially interested in what other kids that I don't know are doing. <laughs> but people tell me all the time. <laughs> I don't mean that to be insulting. But what I'm trying to get at there is that People don't tell me that for my sake. They tell me for their sake. They want to talk about it. You get what I'm saying there? They think they've seen something amazing, whether it be a home run, a goal, their, their kids' cute activities, and kids do cute things. Yes, I know. And they want to talk about it. I remember James Dobson once saying that a man's tongue wags about what he cares about. That's just true. It's almost a natural law. And so I look back and say, what does my tongue wag about? Has my tongue wagged to my non-Christian neighbors and associates about Jesus or not? It's a little bit of a reality check. What's actually front and center in my mind? What does your tongue wag about? What are you proclaiming? I'm not saying that you should absolutely run out and grab your next-door neighbor, pull him up over the fence this afternoon and say, hey, I've got to tell you something. That might not be wise. The point is willingness, eagerness, thought. Are you seeking to have conversations about Jesus? Are you seeking to set the stage so that you can have conversations about Jesus? Are you proclaiming him? And if you're not, you might ask, how well do I know him? Do I really think there's anything remarkable here? Do I really think he's the answer to this person's greatest need? Do I really think this person is going to go to hell forever if they don't hear about this? I should proclaim then. Humbly, be like Jesus, humbly, but proclaim. I 
think that's often the underlying message throughout John. John's very evangelistic. Very subtly so, though. He doesn't bang us over the head with the four spiritual laws all the time. He mostly is showing Jesus to us from different ways. Talking about thirst and hunger. Life. Proclaim that. Maybe the place where you need to start is have some non-Christian friends. Maybe that's where you need to begin. Have some coffee with some neighbors or some other beverage with some neighbors and get to know them a little bit. Find out who they are, what they care about, what their felt needs are so that you can minister to those. Do so with the mindset this person needs to hear about the Jesus of the Bible, the most important question in their life. They have a relationship with Him or not. Should be a concern of ours to proclaim Him. Jesus came humbly. God came to earth humbly to address our greatest need. Went to the cross. It ends up glorifying Him, providing a way for deliverance for people. Rest in Him and proclaim Him. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.